How do you go about determining right from wrong? What is your guide for morality? How do you make those decisions when you come face to face with them? Uh, this past Friday, my wife and I met with our tax accountant, and we got our taxes prepared. Uh, we, we tried to do it all ourselves growing up, and uh, there were so many years where it wasn't a big deal, but as we got older, uh, taxes just got more and more complicated, and so we finally found someone, and he's been a real blessing to us, someone we can trust, and he knows his stuff. Uh, he knows all the things about, you know, uh, our, our situations. My wife is self-employed. Pastors are, some, are considered both employees, and so it, it's a mess at times, and so it's just been a, a real benefit to have him. Um, when we first met with them and, and kind of gave them all the numbers, uh, we actually had a, a sizable amount that we still owed because it just, uh, we, we didn't foresee one change. And um, we started talking through what were some other deductions and, and found one that we hadn't claimed yet um, and, and actually caused a significant swing to go from having a bill to getting a small return, which was a blessing. But it reminded me of a time in my life when, when I was still doing my taxes myself. And if you've ever done, use like TurboTax or a program like that, it always had in the upper right-hand corner, it had a running tally of kind of where you stood. And, and so um, this particular year, it had a, a running tally, probably one of the, it was slated for one of the largest returns that I've ever got. Uh, our, our goal is always to try to kind of get as close to even, if anything, I'd prefer a return as opposed to O, uh, but we want to get as close to even. So this was, this was new, you know, to get this, this sizable return. I'm watching that number, and it's in the black. I'm like, this looks awesome. Okay, you know, as much as I would love to have that money throughout the year, I, I'd love to have this big return. And I'm going, I'm going, I'm going. And I get towards the end, and I realize the number didn't really change, uh, but it went from black into red. And if you know counting, uh, that's not a good thing. Uh, red typically means negative, which in this case would mean uh, that I owe that much. And I'm like, okay, well, that doesn't make sense. What, what happened here? And again, if you're, if you're familiar with TurboTax and how those programs work, you can back up pretty easily. And so I, I kept hitting that back button and watching that number, and, and I went past a certain screen, and it went back to black. And I go forward and go back through. Okay, so something on this screen is changing this from a sizable return to a sizable bill. And I read through that, and it came down to this one little box that I had checked because I asked, you know, a question about my, my beliefs, and part loss has to do with pastoral taxes and how they're applied. And if I checked this box, I had a large bill that I owed the government. If I left it unchecked, I got a sizable return. I mean, it, it was significant. And so I had this, this test of my integrity right here. And so I had to decide, how do I decide what is right or wrong? No one's going to see me do whatever I do here. I mean, of course, this will get submitted to the government, and, and they'll do it. But yeah, no one's really going to comb through all that. You can tell yourself. And so does it really matter? Some would say, well, it doesn't matter because, hey, you know, get, get all the money you can and then use that for God's glory. And, and, and that justifies the lack of integrity. And, and so we, we can make arguments about that. But when it came down to it, as I looked through Scripture and as, as I uh, came to understand God's Word, I'd say that to check this box or uncheck it in a way that is contrary to my beliefs would be a lack of integrity. And, and that, would, that would be sin. And I, I chose not to. I said, I, I chose integrity over money. And again, so that was a, a challenging task for me in my life because, like I said, it went from a sizable return to a, a sizable bill. But I can stand before you today and say, hey, here's a way where, where I made the right choice. Now, all, all my stories of a choice between right or wrong don't end that way. Um, there's times where I've chosen incorrectly, and, and I'm thankful and grateful for God's grace and his forgiveness as found in Jesus. But how do we decide what is right or wrong? How do we determine morality? Maybe you say that there's a code that you live by. I mean, we all have a way in which we make these decisions, how we determine right versus wrong. Let me give some examples of this. 
uh, a common one I hear out there is people say, hey, you're welcome to do whatever you want as long as you don't hurt someone else. As long as you don't infringe on someone else's desires, it's, it's good to go. You can do whatever you want. A lot of times I think when people are saying that, they're really saying for themselves, hey, I want to do whatever I want to do, and, and I won't mess with anyone else. I won't bother anyone else. And just, we all leave each other alone, and, and that, that won't affect anything negatively, which is simply is, is untrue. And, um, but maybe that, that's how you decide what's right or wrong. You say, as long as I'm not hurting anybody, it's right. Maybe it's a, a collective set of rules that you follow or laws set by a majority class or, or ruling class. I mean, a lot of us in, in this nation work that way. Okay, we have these rules that have been set by those who've elected them to make laws and, and set parameters for what is right, what is wrong in our country. Maybe you just simply say, hey, whatever the government says is okay, I'm, I'm going to follow in those footsteps. Maybe you come up uh, against that at times. Maybe there's a set of rules that you adhere to and pass down through family. In our family, one of the things that, that I can see has been passed down is one of the things that are, is right in our family is to seek to be independent so that you can then help others and serve others who are in need. And so that, that, that's a picture of what we've seen as right in our family uh, throughout the, the generations. Maybe there's a, a set of rules passed on through a, a religion that you've been raised in or that you've come to follow. Some religions ban drinking or dancing or playing cards or different things. They say, hey, these things are wrong. Others would say, no, these things are right, and there's no big deal in doing them. Some would say, well, it depends on the situation. Maybe there's a, a brotherhood you have or a connection with someone else, and that leads to how you respond, what you see as right or wrong. I, I think whether you, you've lived this life or not, uh, television and movies have opened us up to this world a little bit uh, to where you're familiar with the phrase, uh, snitches get stitches, Right? And amongst criminals and thieves, there's a code, a way of seeing what is right or what is wrong. You could have a, a room full of, of criminals, and they would still have a code of what they would say is right or wrong, even though they've broken laws, and they've gone against what, what society at large would say was right or wrong. They would justify those, but still say other things are wrong. If you have a sibling, you understand this sense of brotherhood. Don't tell mom or dad. Do not tell mom or dad. In most cases, you don't. Because why? Because you're going to be on the other side of that at some point in your life. Don't know, don't tell mom or dad. Remember, I covered for you. I covered for you. And so you, sometimes we determine what's right or wrong based off of a, a brotherhood or a bond that we have with others. I mean, the interesting thing about this is the very question of right or wrong, this very question, this argument of, of reality or of morality it is one of the possible arguments we could use for the very existence of God. I mean, think about it. Well, oh, Steve, that's a jump. Where are we going with this? I mean, follow with me here. The existence of a perceived objective morality requires a God to grant that authority. If we're saying there is a clear set of right and wrong, who determines that? Who determines what is right? Who determines what is moral? The very acknowledgement of a sense of morality makes the argument for God. Some would say that, that there is no right or wrong. Okay, so Steve, I, I don't think there is a right or wrong. You're saying that, that this concept of morality uh, points to the existence of God. Well, I don't believe there is a right or wrong. I don't believe you're prepared to live in that reality. If you, if you say you are, let me see your wallet. Let me see your keys. Let me take your car for a drive. Well, Steve, I, I'm not going to give you those things. Well, imagine there was someone who would overpower you and just take those things from you. You say, well, that's not right. They can't do that. Well, why not? You said there's no right or wrong. 
And that's just a minor way. And there's all kinds of scenarios we could play out where I think anyone who stands on the position of saying there is no ultimate right or wrong, I think, you know, I, your life doesn't show that. There, there's something inside you that, that has a sense of right or wrong. Now, you may not agree with where that is or where those boundaries are. You may not agree with others around you in that, but the sheer fact that we have this sense of just or injustice, right or wrong, sin or okay, is evidence for the existence of God. So when we're trying to figure that out, we're trying to decide what is right, what is wrong, the best place for us to go is back to the source, the one who gives authority over that whole sense of morality. We should go to the Father. We should go to God and determine right and wrong. What's interesting is I don't think it would take us long to, to realize, all, all of us who, are, who can hear this right now, hear my voice, we disagree on one front or another. When it comes to concepts of right, even if we're all going to say, hey, let, let's look to God for our, our morality, it doesn't take us long to find a category in which we can disagree. Meaning that, that, that there's stuff for us to figure out. Let's start with a hypothetical. I know time machines don't exist, but if a time machine existed, probably be a phone booth, Get in this phone with this figure on the inside. Um, imagine you go on a time traveling phone booth and you go back and you could find and locate different warlords or, or uh, mass murderers from history. Would it be right to kill them as children before they've done any of the things that we know they do in history? If you want to talk about that, invite someone to lunch. We'll go have a conversation around this, this question. Some of them would answer one way, some would be another, and some wouldn't know how to answer. Again, it's a little silly because time machines don't exist, and so it's kind of a silly question in that, right? But there's other ones that we can ask. What is the right thing to do in response to immigration in our country? Let's go a step further. What is the right response to the issue in our world of refugees? People whose homes are being destroyed by internal conflicts or external ones that people have come in and try to take their homes. What, what, what is the right response to that? Again, if we were to entertain that question and, and have conversations, we'd see that there's, there's places in which we disagree as to what the right thing to do is. When is it right for a Christian to drink? When is it right for a follower of Jesus to smoke? Is it ever right? When is it okay for a follower of Christ to get tattoos? I mean, we, we could keep talking on different topics, but I got to imagine that I, I brought up just enough that we could all acknowledge that, yeah, there's areas in which we disagree, even as we're pursuing God, even as we're trying to see what is God's morality, what is right or wrong, there's ways in which we disagree as we pursue him. And that reveals two things to me. I'm sure there's more, but here's what it reveals to me. First is this. We need to learn, we need to grow more in our knowledge of God. There's more for us to learn. We don't have the full picture yet. He's revealed himself uh, to us through Scripture. And if we believe this, we, we see that when we, when we trust Jesus as our Lord and Savior, one of the things that happens amongst many is that the Holy Spirit takes up residence in our lives and, and will work in, in encouraging us, in, in convicting us of sin, and helping us to know who our God is. And so we can look through Scripture. We, we can uh, be in fellowship with one another and share what we've learned. We can look to the Holy Spirit in our lives. But the truth of the matter is we, we all need to learn more in our knowledge of God. 
I think sometimes we, we forget this all too often. Uh, we'll meet someone who, who's new in the faith, who's just trusting Jesus as Lord and Savior. And, and most of the time when someone's in that position, man, there's a passion, there's an excitement, they're just on fire for Jesus, and they want to tell everyone about him. And, and there are parts of their life that don't reflect God's morality yet. Because they've just received Jesus. We all acknowledge that we're a work in progress, that life is a journey, and yet how quick are we sometimes to not offer that grace or that, that acknowledgement to someone who is new in the faith? And sometimes we can be quick to diminish their story. Oh no, you have all these things in your life that you need to clean up, you need to fix, and there's time for that, and there's a place for that, and there's a space for that. But our call is to disciple, not to diminish. Because we all need to learn and grow a little more. And so if you see cases like that, let, let's, out of love, let's with enthusiasm come alongside each other and say, hey, let, let, let's grow together in this. Let me help you understand more about who God is. Uh, maybe help me to see who God is from your experience, from your lessons. So first thing is that our disagreements as we pursue what is right and wrong, as we pursue God in that, it reveals that there's more for us to learn. The second thing it reveals is that more than likely— I think we could probably say 100% certainty. We currently hold beliefs, beliefs about what is right, what is wrong. We currently have beliefs about morality that are likely mistaken. There's things that we believe to be true about right and wrong that we could be wrong about. Are we at least willing to acknowledge that possibility? Am I willing to be corrected? Do I have a humble heart? I mean, we really have to ask these questions uh, about what is the condition of my heart? Whether this is stuff that we have that we don't even realize we believe yet, um, but if, if we were pressed on it, we would land on a certain place. Maybe it's just a, a response to how you grew up or a response to here's, how, well, here's what I believed prior to, to receiving Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Maybe it's some of those beliefs that you haven't uh, uh, responded to God yet. You haven't put that before his word and said, hey, does this hold up? Is this right? Maybe there's just some things about God that, that you don't fully understand yet. And that's led to a, a misunderstanding. Or maybe you've been led astray by someone. Maybe not intentionally, maybe it's intentional, but who knows. But are we willing to acknowledge that there's things we believe today that might need to change? That we might be wrong about? I'm not, call, I'm not asking you to question all you know about the world. I'm just asking, what is the condition of your heart is it a soft and humble heart that is saying, God, grow in me, teach me, help me to see what is true? Or is it one that's unwilling to listen and hear? Is it one that's set in their way saying, I got it all figured out. I'm just waiting for the rest of y'all to catch up. My hope and my prayer is that we all are here this morning with a soft, humble heart as we explore this question of how do we know what is right? How do we pursue God in learning that and understanding? It's a significant question to ask about the condition of your heart because in matters of morality, the heart matters. Uh, so I want you to, to have drilled home today is this truth that in the regards of morality, regards of, of right and wrong, the heart matters. We have to engage the heart. It's not just the actions that we look at, what we do and say, but it's the heart that we need to engage as well. We've been in the middle of a series called Engaging Jesus, a journey through the Sermon on the Mount. And we've been basically looking at this, this sermon that Jesus gave on a mountainside uh, called the Sermon on the Mount. And it's found in Matthew 5 through 7. Uh, if you've been with us for the past couple weeks, you, you've caught some of these things. Uh, if not, maybe you've heard of it before. Maybe you haven't. That's okay. We're going to cover some of it. Well, I want you to turn to your neighbor real quick and, and just tell them some of the points that we've already hit on, like uh, some, some of the, the details around the Sermon on the Mount, whether it's who's speaking, who's listening, where, any of those things. And go. I know, I'm really putting you out there.
Make sure as you're talking, make sure to tell them this is the longest recording teaching that Jesus has. You keep talking, that's fine. Make sure to tell your neighbor this is Jesus speaking to his disciples, right? He's primarily speaking to his disciples. And wait, there's other people too, right? Tell, did you tell them that there's an audience that's gathered around? And the audience is likely, it's from Jewish descent. Did you guys tell, tell your neighbor that he's on a mountainside? Right, Sermon on the Mount, that one's kind of the, the gimme there. It's like, like, like the foothills. If you think of it, uh, you get this kind of incline. It creates this natural amphitheater. I mean, they didn't have like a speaker system they set up and, and plugged into a generator back then. But this is this natural amphitheater his voice would have carried. It would have, would, have, would have been able to speak to the crowds that were there. Our first week, we touched briefly on uh, the Beatitudes. And the reason I want to bring those up is, is I want to remind us that this sermon, it's similar to the wisdom literature you'd see in the Old Testament. Why that's important is it hits on some of the style that Jesus is going to use in, in preaching. In the same way we teach today, there's a poetry to it. We look at the Beatitudes, and there's this form and function that it follows, where it begins with a group of people. Blessed are this group of people for, and then it gives a promise. Blessed are is group A, because they will receive promise A. Blessed is group B, for they receive promise. We get this back and forth. And so we need to acknowledge that what we're reading has an element of poetry to it. Has an element, this is wisdom literature. We need to read it in that light because as we're reading through this, I also want you to remember that, that in matters of morality, that the heart matters. And so we're looking at this question, how, how am I growing in my understanding? Do, do some of my viewpoints need to be corrected? And, and Jesus is going to hit on all kinds of stuff as we continue to walk through the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to try to cover all of them. Some we'll just scratch the surface of. Others we'll, we'll dig into a little more as we work through chapters 5 through 7. But we ended last week with verse 20. Matthew 5, verse 20. If you've got your Bibles, you've got to open up uh, to Matthew 5. That's where we're going to be here for the rest of our morning. Uh, there's Bibles in the pews. You can grab one, make it your own. It'll always be on the screen as well. Uh, if you want to go digital, turn on an, an iPad or a smartphone um, or a tablet, you know, and, and pull up Scripture that way. Whatever it takes to get God's Word in front of you. And, and, and check someone. So when they say, oh, yeah, it says in here. You look it up and see, does it really? And, and read for yourself with your own eyes. Get the, get the Word of God in front of you. We end it with verse 20 where Jesus is speaking to the disciples and speaking to this crowd. He says this, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. His audience would have heard that and been like, well, how can I be more righteous than the scribes and the Pharisees? They, they would have been seen as the ones who were the most, most righteous in their days. They followed the law to a T. Not only did they follow the law, but they, they established kind of this secondary law, the set of rules and guidelines that keep them from even getting close to breaking the law. Well, you say the speed limit's 35, I'm only driving 25. You say no more than 10 items in this lane, I'm only bringing up seven. I mean, still examples, but they, they applied that to the concept of the law. And so they would have been seen as the most righteous in their actions. But as we continue to explore Jesus' relationship uh, with, with the Pharisees, we see that they were some of his biggest adversaries. Because while they were maybe clean on the outside, or it appeared that way, they weren't engaging God with their heart. Jesus called them whitewashed tombs. He said, you're shiny and clean on the outside, but you're dead on the inside. And so on one hand, he, he's called him to, to where he's going to be going and he, as he continues to minister and continues to share his message of who he is and what he's come to do, that he's the Messiah, that there's forgiveness of sin found in Jesus, that, that apart from Jesus, we, we can't be righteous enough. We, we can't follow the law enough 
in some way or another, we're going to fall short. We're going to mess up. Even the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, or the, the scribes, they weren't good enough, Jesus was saying. Because there was sin in our lives. There was ways we've gone against the will of God. And we can see clearly from this point in history, looking back to see what Jesus was talking about, this truth that when we trust in him for the forgiveness of our sin, the perfection of Jesus is placed upon us and our sin is washed away. That when God sees us, he sees righteousness. And we can be in relationship with him. And so when Jesus says you have to be more righteous than them, he's basically saying you need to trust in me for the forgiveness of your sin. But there's still a piece of the heart that needs to be engaged with that as well. It's not just uh, making sure that our actions are in the right. Otherwise, the Pharisees and scribes would have been good to go. But there's more than that. And that's what we're going to begin here in verse 21. What's going to happen here is, is, is to be a couple different topics where Jesus is going to bring a topic up, and he's going to say, you have heard this. Here's what uh, the belief that you're probably bringing to the table as you're hearing what I'm saying. But I say this, and he takes it up a notch. Remember, he said he came, not to abolish the law, but to, to fulfill the law. So he's going to take it a next step in these different areas of life. Now, some of these specific areas, maybe it's things that you don't struggle with. Uh, my guess is we're going to hit uh, on a soft spot, on a tender spot for each person here in some way or another with the topics we're going to be talking about here briefly. Uh, but even if we don't, what I really want you to zero in on is what Jesus wasn't talking about wasn't simply behavior modification, but heart modification. He, he, while he's talking about our actions and things we can do and say, really he, what he wants to deal with is matters of the heart. And so even if these categories that we're going to bring up this morning, these uh, matters of the heart, these actions, I, if they don't kind of ring a bell with you right now, it's not a, an area of your life that you're struggling or that you needed any wisdom in it at this point in your life, that's fine. But I encourage you to look at this picture of, okay, well, how is Jesus calling me to engage my heart in the things that I do? And to ask this question, okay, am I right with God? With, with, with what is in my heart? So let's begin here in verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. If you're just hearing that for the first time, you're thinking, whoa, Jesus just kind of stepped things up a notch. So he said, you have heard it said. He's referencing uh, what they would have heard in the past, things from the Old Testament. One place where they would have heard this, you shall not murder, would have been in Exodus chapter 20, where we get the Ten Commandments. Do not murder. And, and what's interesting is on that first bit, which is, you've heard it said, do not murder. I wonder how many people, uh, both in his audience and how many of us here, are like, yep, I got that one covered. Haven't killed anybody today. You know what? I haven't killed anybody this year yet. And I, I think I'm probably good for the rest of my life. You know, nope, not going to murder. It's funny how often we use our lack of being a murderer as evidence for being a good person. As if that's the line. Nope, haven't killed anybody. You're trying to introduce a friend to you know, someone that, you know, uh, maybe a, significant, a potential significant other. Tell me about them. Well, he hasn't killed anybody, and uh, he's got a job. So, you know, win-win. <laughs> probably a few more parameters we want to look into there. But he says, okay, you've heard it said, don't murder. Okay, yep, got it covered, haven't killed anybody. But I say, Jesus saying, if you're angry, it deserves the same punishment as murder. If you insult someone, 
that you face this judgment as well. If you say you fool, that there's a judgment as well for that. Now, this, this phrase here, insult, actually comes from the Aramaic raka, which means like if you were to say raka to someone, it's like you're calling them an idiot. You're insulting their intellect. You're calling them stupid. And this other one, that this you fool, it comes from the Greek moros. It's actually where we get the word moron. You're calling someone uh, you know, a moron. You're, you're, the, the connotation of those has more of an offense of the heart, their character. Now, we also have to acknowledge that this would have been in a culture that would have acknowledged this kind of mindset of shame and honor. In our day and age, they don't rank as high as they would have in Jesus' audience's days. And so this concept of calling someone a fool or insulting their, their, their intellect or their character. I mean, it's kind of like, this is a, a broken example, but I think it makes the point. Um, if you have a good credit score, and you're seeking to get more credit somewhere, that good credit score speaks on your behalf. So say, this person knows how to handle their credit. They know how to handle debt and finances. They'll pay the bill. You can trust them. But if you have a low credit score, say, hey, there might be some things you need to look into. There's some things in their past, just red flags or yellow flags you need to look into, right? And that's one reason why they have credit scores. As financial institutions want to know, who are we getting into a relationship with here? And so your reputation, especially in a shame and honor-based culture, your reputation meant a whole lot then than it does today. It still means something today, don't get me wrong, but especially in a shame and honor-based society, your reputation means so much. And so if you got someone going out there calling you a fool or calling you a moron, oh, you don't want to deal with him. He's an idiot. Oh, bless his heart. You know? <laughs> it would have been the societal murder in a sense. You're murdering their good name. And so it's not so much the fact of being angry that Jesus is saying is wrong. But again, it's going to the matters of the heart. All the, the connotation in this verse points to Jesus talking about an unrighteous anger. As we look at the, the whole of Scripture, we, we see in Ephesians chapter 4, it talks about, in your anger, do not sin. It's not saying don't be angry. It's saying in your anger, do not sin. We also see other times where, where Jesus himself had an, a righteous anger in response to injustice, in response to sin in this world. And so it's not saying that all anger is sinful but saying that, that when your anger is in a way that, that is sinful, when, when it um, wants to bring someone else down, seeks to destroy someone's reputation, or, or, or murder them socially, if not physically, even if we don't say any of that, even if we don't act on any of that, if that's the condition of our heart, that, then we've got to stand before God and make amends for that. Jesus would say that that would be wrong. So the question we have to ask then is, okay, so if we want to grow in our understanding of this, he's calling us to engage our heart, what, what do we do then? So if, if we're in this place of, of having anger towards someone and it's in our heart acting out sinfully, what, what do we do about that? Let's keep reading. Verse 23. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, you got to kind of acknowledge this isn't just, hey, you're in conflict with someone. But you, you, someone has something against you. you. You're the one in the wrong. You're the one who's messed up. The examples that are going to be given here are ones where you're the one in the wrong. So in cases where we're in the wrong, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother. And then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him 
to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you'll be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Jesus is giving two examples of how to deal with, with an unrighteous anger. First one is this. Seek reconciliation before worship. Seek reconciliation before worship. He said, hey, if your anger has caused issue between you and someone else, before you go to the altar, in the Old Testament time, the previous that would have led up to uh, this, Jesus' audience would have had this process of, hey, if you sin, you go and you offer a sacrifice at the temple. You'd bring an animal that would take your place, and you'd lay it at the altar, and the priest would sacrifice it, and it's death. It's blood being shed would pay the price for your sins, for your mistakes. And so what Jesus is saying, say, hey, before you offer that, go and make things right as you are able. Go to your brother where there is conflict. We've talked about this verse a little bit in context of communion. The first Sunday of each month, we, we celebrate the Lord's table as we remember what Jesus did for us at the cross. And, and one of the things uh, that we're called to in 1 Corinthians 11 is to examine ourselves before the Lord. And so in that time, if we find, hey, that there's a way that I've, I've you know, been harboring anger towards someone, as we're seeing what Jesus is calling us to here, okay, we'll go and deal with that first and then come back to the Lord's table. But it's, it's a bigger picture than this. And that would have been an act of worship, an act of obedience, an act of sacrifice uh, to offer this sacrifice at the altar. And so in one sense we say, hey, before we go there, we need to go and make things right. That's why I even say when we're, we're taking communion, hey, before you can celebrate the forgiveness that comes through the cross, let's respond to it in our lives by going and seeking to make things right. A couple different things we can do. It's hard to be at peace with God when we're in conflict with others as a result of our own sin that we haven't sought to make amends for yet. So three things I want to call you to do. First we can do is this, if, if this is describing us, if there's someone that, that our anger has caused conflict with, own what is yours to own. Own what is yours to own. Whether it's matters of the heart or things you've said, it's matters of action, own what is yours to own and apologize for that. Second thing is ask for forgiveness. So own what's yours, ask for forgiveness. And, and you know, sometimes these are cases where, where you know, is mutual issues. We, we both offended the other, and that's where that conflict comes from. So be willing to not only ask for forgiveness, but offer forgiveness if it's necessary in your situation. Be willing to say, and that asking forgiveness is basically saying, I'm, I'm wrong, I was wrong, please forgive me. Own what's yours, ask for forgiveness, and then do all that you can to live at peace with one another. We see it in Romans 12, 18, it says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. There's an acknowledgement that, hey, there's some things you can't control. And so you may follow all these steps and go and seek to make things right and fess up to your anger and try to resolve that conflict. And that person just doesn't want to, no, I'm sorry. I'm going to hold this grudge against you. There's still conflict here. There's still issue here because of what you did. We, we can't control how they respond to that. So as much as it depends on us, as much as we are able, let's seek to live peaceably with one another. Let's seek to, to seek reconciliation. And so if we've done that, whether it results in reconciliation or not, that, that takes both people involved. But if we've sought that as best we can, if we've left it on the table, if they said, no, thank you, left that door open to say, hey, whenever you're ready, I, I would love to make amends. I'd love to have us be reconciled to one another. If you've walked that road, come to the Lord's table. And, and with full freedom of heart, be able to worship him for who he is and to seek his peace. 
And I believe he'll respond in that. So seek reconciliation before you go to worship. This isn't a diminishing of worship. This isn't saying that it's not important. You just go do this other stuff first. If anything, it's an elevation of how serious God wants us to take being reconciled to one another. He's saying, deal with your anger. Go be reconciled with one another and then come together and seek me as one. Something that we do in this other example of someone who uh, has a debt to someone else is to say, deal swiftly with it. Let's deal swiftly with our conflict. Let's deal swiftly with our junk before it grows into something else. If you don't, then you're going to go to court, and it'll go to the judge, and the, the judge is going to go to the, the guard, and it's going to go to the, the, from the accuser to the judge to the, the prisoner. And then you, you'll be there until you pay back every cent. And if you think about it, well, how, how can you pay back while you're in prison? And this, this is the sense of hopelessness. If you allow this thing to grow, it will lead to a place, to a sense of hopelessness. Deal with your conflict before it grows. Well, what I shared, I think it was last week, I shared um, just my, my story, and I know we all have our own different stories, and, um, you know, just in junior high when my parents got divorced and how that kind of affected me a little bit and, and, and how they revealed that to me and whatnot. But um, because of that, I was angry with my dad for a while. And at that same time of my life, um, I was kind of exploring what I believed and exploring my faith. I grew up in the Lutheran Church. Um, and if you're familiar with the way they do things in the Lutheran Church, um, they baptize you as a baby, and then you go through a, a confirmation class in eighth grade. It's supposed to, hey, here's all the things that that, that meant, and let's teach you about that. And, and now you can basically say, hey, this is my choice. I mean, really what we do here is we say that there really is no basis or, or grounds or need for infant baptism that we see in Scripture. So we just say once you are of age, once you're old enough to acknowledge your, your need for Jesus, you can say, hey, I, I've sinned, and I trust in Jesus for that. Then, okay, then go and be baptized. We see throughout the New Testament, they believed and were baptized. But anyways, that, that's a whole other conversation. So the way they did Lutheran Church is they did baptize you as an infant, and then you have this confirmation class. And I, I went through all that. I finished the classes, and, and that brought my mom's satisfaction. So, okay, you, you've gone up to this point. It's now up to you what you want to keep doing. No longer is my mom going to say you have to go to church. No longer is she going to say you have to do these things. Hey, you've gone to this point. It's your choice. And I, I chose not to go. So at the end of my eighth grade year, I walked away from the church. And then uh, my freshman year of high school, I got connected with some friends and some, uh, a parachurch organization, basically an organization that helps try to get people connected into the church. But um, they, they were, uh, had a heavy influence on the schools um, and the students there. And, and I heard the gospel afresh through that ministry, and, and I gave my life over to Christ. And for a long time, I was angry towards a Lutheran church because I felt like, hey, I, I don't know what happened, but how come I didn't hear this good news of Jesus? All through eighth grade, I grew up in the church, and I feel like I never heard that. And I've, I've come to terms with that. I made amends with that. And, and there's also a piece where I've owned what was mine. And I said, hey, I, I don't know if it was they weren't saying it clearly or if I wasn't listening. I know I had my own junk going on in, in those days as well. But those are two moments in my life that when I think about when was I angry, when was there anger as a key part of my life? It was anger towards my, my parents, my dad specifically, and then anger towards the Lutheran Church. And here's what's interesting about both of those. At large, you can look at them, and my actions weren't in the wrong. I, I didn't do things to be vindictive towards my father or towards the church. I didn't lash out at either one of those. I wasn't in action acting out on that anger. But in my heart, I was. In my heart, I, I held on to that. And so in my heart, 
There was sin in my heart. There was things I had to deal with. I had to confess before God. Why? Because in matters of morality, the heart matters. All right, so let's keep going. We've got covered anger. Next, we're going to talk about lust here. Matthew 5, 27. You've heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So Jesus refers back again to Exodus 20. Hits out another one, Ten Commandments about adultery. You've heard it said, okay, adultery is wrong. But now Jesus is saying even to look lustfully with lustful intent at someone else is wrong. And he kind of clarifies well, that whole what this look is like. Uh, if you look at the, the tensing of the verb look, it has a sense of keeps looking. If it's this continual looking. So if all of a sudden something that would incite lustful thoughts pops into your vision, oh man, that, you know, that, that, well, that lustful image made me sin. Well, okay, you can look away. Basically, if you continue to look, if you engage the temptation, that there's no sin in temptation. Jesus was tempted in every way that we could experience. There's no sin in temptation. I cannot stress that enough. Too many times uh, we engage with, with, with friends and neighbors and, and, and those who need to hear about the grace of Jesus, and we condemn them for being tempted. Or even other brothers and sisters in Christ, there is no sin in temptation. It's when we act upon that. And so that's what Jesus hit on say. So when, when you look lustfully, when you, when you continue to soak it in, that's where there's sin. It's not just the act of adultery, but what's going on in the heart. Have you ever heard the phrase, it doesn't hurt to look? I think Jesus is trying to break that down. He's saying, actually, it does. I can think of a few key uh, environments that I grew up in. You know, you have your home where you grew up in. You probably had family members that you frequented often or uh, just different places you would go to. And, and even as you grew uh, as an adult, and, and some of these places just stuck out in my mind. Uh, there, there was uh, a place um, where I moved from in Lombard um, where I connected with some of the guys where it was an automotive place. And um, so I, I kind of build a relationship with them. That was one that comes to mind. There's a few places in my life where I can think, okay, there, there are all kinds of images that were trying to incite lust. You know, they have pictures or posters or calendars that were put up on the wall. Um, we say, is it wrong to look at these things? Well, according to what Jesus is saying here, he's saying it is. It, it would be referred to as adultery of the heart. And I think some of us say, well, you know, there's some obvious ones. We say, you know, pornography is so readily available in our day and age. Okay, you know, if that's something you're struggling with, that, that brings about lustful thoughts. I mean, that's, that's its intent. That's its purpose. So that, I think that one's a no-brainer. But there's all kinds of other places in which that there are images and, and things that we allow ourselves to linger on, and they bring about lustful images, or lustful thoughts. And we allow those thoughts to continue on, and we don't acknowledge them for what they are. We don't say, hey, no, this, this is adultery of the heart. So maybe that there's a lingering glance. Someone walks by who, who's physically appealing Instead of just, you know, okay, I saw them walk by and leave it at that, you allow the mind to wander. And sometimes it's not even the, the, just simply the physical side. You know, I know this is a generality, but as we look at some of the differences between men and women, typically men respond more visually, whereas women typically respond more emotionally. Or so I'm told, I'm still trying to figure women out. Um, but uh, <laughs> they respond more emotionally. And that doesn't mean that this isn't something that women don't struggle with or mess with women, but I think there's other ways that we can linger in our looks. You know, maybe a pretty girl walks by and someone look at that, or a pretty guy would walk by, or a cute guy, whatever you want to call it, and that would lead us to a place of lust. Sometimes you look at another couple and you see one treating the other in a way that you long for, and you have an emotional lusting, where it's like, oh, now I wish 
my guy was like that. I wish my girl was like that. I wish I got 12 dozen flowers on Valentine's Day. I wish I got all those chocolates. I wish I got that big teddy bear. I, I wish I had, you know, someone who, who thought of these different things and, and, and loved me in these different ways. We can begin to have adultery of, of the heart. So what, what is our response to that? Okay, I want you to remember that there's a poetry aspect to how Jesus is speaking, and he's going to use something here called hyperbole, which is it's an exaggerated statement that's not meant to be taken literal. We're going to come back to that, but let's keep reading to see how, how do we deal with this matters of a lustful heart. Matthew 5, 29 through 30. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better to, that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than the whole body go into hell. Let me repeat, this is hyperbole. Jesus is not condoning, he's not saying that we should go and pluck out our eyes and cut off our hands if they cause us to sin. Because honestly, if we play that out, what good does that do in solving our, our, the matter of our sin? The eyes and hands of our mind can still continue to walk us down a road of sin even after we blinded ourselves or mutilated ourselves and removed our hands, right? So it doesn't solve the issue. So why would Jesus say this? If, if it's being poetic in nature, what's the point he's trying to make? He's trying to say we, we need to be serious about removing lust. Be serious about combating lust and dealing with it in our lives. Um, I got a few pictures I want to show here. Uh, let's just do the first three real quick. Um, imagine you had a bear in your house. Looks nice, right? Am I the only one that wants to snuggle with that bear right now? I mean, let's see the next one. I mean, you see this. You see it caring for its cub. And it's, I mean, that's hard from a distance. You, you just want to be like that little baby cub and just hop on its back and just bury your face in its fur and, and you know, just... It looks like it smells good, even though it probably doesn't. You don't know those things. But just for the picture, it looks like the sweet thing. Okay, the next one. And it can do tricks, you know, and it's entertainment. And you say, hey, you know what? This bear is not going to hurt anybody. Let's just leave it in the house, okay? Yeah, we got a bear in the house. We, we don't always make it known, but, you know, we just leave this bear here. And then you get this. Next picture. Now you see the true nature of the bear come out. I think that's sometimes how we view matters of lust. As we say, oh, it's, it's harmless. We just, we'll just leave them in the house. They're cute. They look fun to cuddle. But we don't realize it is the true nature of that road that we allow to be present in our homes leads to death and destruction and injury. That's rarely our own or only our own, but it's many times in our relationships. And so when it comes to matters of lust, Jesus is saying, take it seriously you got a bear in your house, and you want to cuddle it and play with it. That thing is a killer, and it's going to maul you. You know, I know a guy who had a bear. No, just give him time, all right? Back off. Those things are killers. So let's remove the sources of lust as we're able is one of the things that we could do. If there's sources of lust that we're leaving up in our homes, in our workplaces, in our vehicles, and in our, our private spaces, get rid of them. Let, engage the heart. Say, Jesus, I, I want to honor you in this. Let's get rid of those sources as we are able. And acknowledge that there's some that we're not able to control. We, we live in community with other people. We can't control everything we see, but we can control how much we continue to look at it. So prepare yourself to stand against lust when it commonly comes up. Think of the places that you can't remove it from, but it still comes up commonly in your uh, life. 
and prepare yourself for that. Pray before you go into those situations. I read a book about this where this author was saying he was a businessman. A lot of times, you know, he would go to these different offices, and one of the first person he would run into would be a receptionist who would always be sitting at a desk, and he'd be standing at the desk, and nine times out of ten would have a tight, low-cut top. And he's like, at a full show every time I wanted it. And so he acknowledged that that was a commonality he would come across, and so he prepared himself for that. Plotting, hey, where am I going to look instead? And, and, you know, fighting that fight. Okay, look at, you know, Look people in the eye and those kind of things. So whatever your source of that is that you can't remove, prepare yourself for that. And sometimes this, we don't know where it's coming from. So train yourself to be able to respond. So that we bounce our eyes instead of lingering on those sources. Let's take lust seriously for it can bring about great destruction just like a bear in the house. And I kind of zip through these last ones. I kind of use most of my time here, but um, two more that Jesus hits on. First one's divorce. Matthew 5, 31, 32. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. He's referring to, uh, in Deuteronomy 24, talks about being able to give the certificate of, of divorce. And uh, what I want you to see in this one is, in the culture that Jesus found himself in, they saw it as okay to divorce. E even in areas of beyond sexual immorality, where you just write the certificate of divorce and you end it and you move on, you go your own way. And it was easy for a man to divorce his wife. And you make the argument, well, yeah, but God's word didn't honor that, but the culture was living that. And that impacted a lot of the Jews in that day too. It would have said, okay, it's okay to divorce. And what I want you to see in this is, as we're talking about matters of the heart, so how do we figure out right and wrong? We can't always look to culture to be our guide for that. Might doesn't always make right. The masses don't always get it right. We need to be willing to be different. There's an experiment conducted where you had five students brought in. They, they all thought they were part of the experiment when in truth, the fifth guy was the only one that was being experimented on. And what they would do is they would show you about four or five lines of varying lengths, and you have to say which line looks the shortest. And the first couple trials, uh, the, the first guy would say, you know, uh, line C, line C, line C, line C. And you get to the fifth guy, you say, line C. And they were right. It was line C that was obviously the shortest. And this would go on for a couple, kind of build this pattern. They're all getting them all right. And then all of a sudden, the first guy, he'd be plant, he would know about this. He would say, then they'd show you a new, new array of lines, and line D would be the shortest, and B would be the next one. Well, he would say B. He'd say, line B is the shortest, knowing that it's not. And the second guy would say, line B, knowing that it's not the shortest. And the third, and the fourth. And you got to the fifth guy, who's the only guy not in on the experience. He, he doesn't know what's going on. He, he thinks he's just trying to say which line is the shortest. And the majority of the time, they respond with the crowd. They would say, oh, B looks the shortest. Because he didn't want to be singled out. He didn't want to be the only one to go against the flow. He was willing to second-guess his own perception, what his eyes had been telling him, and had been correct up until this point because of the fact that everyone else was saying, you're wrong. We need to be willing to be different. Sometimes, yeah, we, you know, when, a, when a loved one comes into our lives and says, hey, hey, you're wrong in this, we need to be able to hear them out and, and hold that against God's Word and see if there's truth in that and explore that. But just because everyone else is going one way doesn't mean that that's the way to be going. And so morality sometimes will call us to stand against our culture. Let's finish up here in verse 33 and on, uh, referring to oaths. Again, you have heard it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. 
But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. There's a whole bunch of different Old Testament verses that we could say Jesus is referencing here, where talks about honesty, talks about not taking an oath. Um, and the focus here, even though it starts on hating on the oath, isn't so much the not taking an oath, because we see other examples where promises were made in Scripture and, and they, weren't, um, they weren't spoken against. There's like, there no problem in doing that. Um, but the heart here is a heart of, of honesty. Let your yes be simply yes and your no be simply no. What's interesting, the more I thought about this, is majority of the time, you know when we make a promise, we make an oath, it's because we're trying to convince someone of the truth. Think about that. Well, one of you had to say, no, 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 I, I promise. I promise I'll be there. I promise I'll come through. I promise I'll do what I'm saying I'm going to do. It's because someone is questioning whether or not we're telling the truth, right? I mean, you probably use it with, with siblings or with family members more often because they, they know some of your past. They know some of your baggage. And you, you say, hey, I'm, I'm going to come through on this situation. You say, no, no, I, I promise. Jesus is saying, no, just, just let your yes be your yes and your no be your no. The question we ask here is ourselves this morning is when it comes to matters of right or wrong, when it comes to matters of morality, do we know Jesus' heart in the matter and are we seeking his heart in the matter? Because the heart matters. Now, I want to close, bring us back to one of the things we said the first week is that Jesus changes everything. And so when it comes to matters of trying to figure out what is right or wrong in our life, and, and he has a few more of these, hey, you've heard this, but I say this, we're going to cover that next week. But when it comes to these matters of right or wrong, it comes to matters of morality, let us look to Jesus. The heart behind the Sermon on the Mount wasn't simply that we change our behavior, but that we would engage in Jesus, with Jesus in our hearts. Let's pray. Father God, you are an amazing God. We thank you so much for who you are. We ask that you would work in us and through us, Father, this week ahead and the days ahead as we engage in matters of anger or matters of, of lust or, or sexual immorality and divorce or matters uh, of um, making promises Help us to take steps in these areas of life, Father God, even if uh, none of these areas are really convicting right now. Father, I pray that we each want to be convicted in the mindset of, of how are we engaging with you, Lord Jesus. Being a follower of yours uh, isn't primarily about acting a cer certain way or following a certain set of rules. It's about you. It's about relationship with you. It's about knowing you. It's about responding to what you call us to. It's about... Uh, addressing conflict as a result of our anger because that's what you desire for us. That's what you call us to. It's about removing sources of lust uh, because of who you are, not simply because you tell us to, not simply because it's this behavior that you call us to, Father, but because we engage with who you are and we want to be like you, Jesus. We want to honor you and obey you. So help us to engage with who you are. For some of us, that might be, this might be the first time we even uh, want to engage in that, Father, and, and, and Help us to see you, Jesus, for who you are, to see that you are Lord and Savior, that you're the forgiver of sin and the leader of our lives, and we surrender to you. Help us to live in that truth and that reality all the days of our lives. In your name.